The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Hello. Today I'm finally going to be bringing the Upper Room Book of Church Order to... Um, be doing the whole thing over the next two weeks. I about got it done. For supper tonight for our love feast. Unfortunately for you, it's virtual. For me, fortunately, it's not. We have, I think, Jay Lore is the wine. Um, I have no idea what that is, but it's a vegetable of some sort. It's uh, tomatoes, bell peppers, two different kinds of onions, and Bella mushrooms, large Bella mushrooms that I sliced up. And the meat, of course, is just <clears throat> meat. And it's very good. It's meat that we are here. Today I'm going to start with the introduction to um, the whole big picture of the Book of Church Order and then the introductory statement about who is the king. And it should take about 15 minutes max. This is the introduction to the Upper Room Book of New Covenant Church Order. If anybody can come up with a better name, please do. The New Testament Church is defined by the conviction that in Jesus Christ, the creation order is restored under the banner of his kingship, <clears throat> his covenant headship, his lordship. His original plan for mankind and through mankind, all of creation, would be established and restored and completed. That is the meaning of God being among us. Now the purpose of creation was so that God himself could dwell in the flesh with his creatures in an earth or in a creation where his image bearers had fully developed its created potential. His creation was to the core moral because those he created to develop the full potential of the earth were moral to their core as right, true, and good that is, morality, are essential to God's being. Because of sin, the ethical, hardwired core of reality remained childish, frozen, incapable of carrying out its designed commission with the disastrous effect of false judgment based on a twisting of God's law, the way children do. When Jesus was born, <clears throat> he showed what a man is to have been like, so he is called the second Adam. But for creation to continue, he had to restore what the locusts had devoured. His work on the cross pays for the sin of his people. It pays for the restoration of the earth and the restoring of his people to what he intended at creation and restoring them to their created purpose and glory to heal the nations and transform the world. These restored people are given hearts of flesh to replace the stone that has defined the limits of their ethical and judicial immaturity. From the rebellion in the garden, until Christ broke those tablets and made them living flesh again, writing his law on the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit, making their self-government possible, and based on that, transforming the external governments of the world was no longer a utopian dream but the inevitable victory flowing from the cross, the ascension, and Pentecost, the, those three fundamental doctrines, <clears throat> four actually, because you would have to include the, the incarnation. Ascending into heaven, Christ is seated with all power and authority, out of which he and the Father send their Holy Spirit to fill his people from the least of them to the greatest. He empowers them to personally he personally empowers them to personally carry out his commission to fill the earth and disciple the nations. His plan from creation, 
his design for human and world order, his incarnation, his atonement, his from-the-heart law inscribed on his new creatures in Christ, his sending of the Holy Spirit, these define who and what the church is and its central role in the restoration of God's plan for the ages. And that is what this <clears throat> book of church order, this handbook for a church of the new covenant, as opposed to the church of the old covenant, <clears throat> is going to explore. Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church. Government rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, whose name is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those are his names, not his descriptions. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He sits on the throne of David to order and establish his kingdom with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. God the Father gave all power to him in heaven and in earth, raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, raised him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He made all things his footstool. He gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which his body is, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and in him holds all things together in creation. Good time to take a break here. Stop and think about what I just read. Now that's just pretty much boilerplate. Any book of church order, I don't care what denomination, you could be Orthodox, Catholic, whatever. You'll read that about Jesus. This is one of those things that everybody says. Because everybody believes it's true. And then from there, they start diverging. What does it mean? <clears throat> Goodness. What does it mean for this king to rule? What does it mean to have dominion? And to that point, the different views and understandings of the church. Oh, man, that's good. Got to come visit, okay? We can, we can eat this stuff all the time. You just come see me. Until then, just got to turn it off because it's too hard to watch. What does it mean? That's where we start diverging. But the reason we all start here is because everybody who calls themselves Christians, Christian, wants the world to know that their thinking stems from Jesus of Nazareth. That's a remarkable fact. It's a remarkable thing we have in common, and it's a remarkable way to reach through and contact other people who you might think are quite different. Because from here, we do tend to get different. Now, there's still a few more aspects of Jesus. Jesus Christ ascended far above all heavens. Well, let's get a running start here. He raised him above, when he came, brought him back from the dead, he raised him above all authority and power in the world, made all things his footstool. So Jesus Christ is in complete control gave him to be the head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now just wait. That's what we're going to be talking about. But the reason I'm going to be saying everything else that comes, and we're up to about 15,000 words now, not for this talk, but that's about where I am. The reason I say that is because the church of Jesus Christ is the church of the one who is the head of all creation. It's, it's the body. It's, it's the organization. It's the, it's the people called after his name. And he's the head of all things. And he says he will rule through the church. Now, what does that mean? Oh, one more thing about Jesus. He's the one who holds all things together in creation. He's that power that makes it happen. So, he ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. He received gifts for his bride, the church, and he gave his church hearts of flesh, taking away their hearts of stone. He wrote on their heart his law, as he himself, the second Adam, is the law word of God made flesh. He's the pattern for his new people, as Adam was to be with God's law word written on his heart. I should say as Adam was to be that pattern for all the rest of mankind. But when he thought, saw another way to define ethics, to define right and wrong, at that point, he lost the ability to deal with creation as an adult as someone has, who has matured his understanding of the difference between good and evil, because he re re rejected the foundation of the difference between good and evil. And the foundation are as in those few words, <clears throat> God said, 
That's the difference between good and evil. To his new creation, he gave all gifts and callings necessary to build up his church. And with the Father, by the way, he used the word edification, but that's because there's some people that if you like don't talk special language, they think you're stupid. So I just, I know what edification means, folks, so for all you out there who are turning it off already. And with Father, with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit for protecting of his saints, for the perfecting of his saints, making them sufficient for all things to be self-directed from the heart, fearing no wind that might blow them about. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, he's with us. Every theology gives lip service to that fact. Very few theologies go on to develop their thinking in light of that fact. Jesus is the mediator, the priest, the prophet, the king, the savior, the head of the church, and therefore he contains in himself by way of eminency all the gifts of his church. He is the apostle, the teacher, the pastor, the minister, the bishop, the prophet, the shepherd, the only lawgiver in Zion. It belongs to his majesty <clears throat> to rule and it belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the by the ministry of all his saints, which is utterly different from an organizational office which empowers a leadership elite to bind God's helpless people who cannot act apart from their judgments. So I'll just read those two together. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of all his saints, all his saints. And that is an utterly different concept from an organizational office which empowers a leadership elite to bind God's helpless people who cannot act apart from their judgment and must submit to them. You say, well, what, what kind of church does that? My friend, if you would just read any book of church order, you'll see they all do that. He leads and empowers the victorious struggle of the church against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms also, through which struggle the flesh and blood of space-time history of the earth is transformed according to his plan from the foundation of the world. Therefore, Christ grants his own authority to his people to declare, judge, and execute the whole counsel of God in the midst of the congregation. The exercise of this power is not in the private control of those who do these things professionally, that is for pay, because they're experts, on behalf of the congregation in the back rooms of power. Rather, the exercise of this power to judge, to execute the whole counsel of God is in the midst of the congregation of God's people. He conveyed it unto them. When the Lord and King of the church says, it is not to be so among you, he explicitly rejects the authoritarian way the Gentiles, or the nations, or all government, really since Genesis 3.16, have always structured the authority and power of all their governing since the fall. Their government of the select few of their great ones to rule over them is not to be so among you. And this might be arrogant on my part, but it is the only attempt I know of to provide a comprehensive book of church order for people who say, okay, so we want a church that isn't authoritarian, but we don't want chaos either. What would it look like? And so let me begin. The Holy Spirit speaking through the word is sufficient to ordain, that is to set apart, to select, to set apart, define that is, to, 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 to lay the groundwork of who and what it is and who and what it isn't. Sanctify, that is, to make the, the way he wants them to be. And protect God's people. God's people are those who are created and sustained by the Holy Spirit, speaking through the word, correcting the errors that at any given time plague the ministry and peace of his people. God's word and spirit continue to correct and, and refine his people in the truth, as they grow in grace and maturity through space-time history until his return. Doctrinally, the church has always declared its dependence on the sufficiency and efficacy of Scripture. By the way, efficacy is another one of those words. It just means Scripture works, baby. Scripture is sufficient. It's what you need for anything you face. And when you use what Scripture says, it works. When you apply God's Word, it works. 
And everybody says that. Everybody says they, they, they depend on the Holy Spirit. Everybody says, yep, the Bible, that's what we do. But in actual practice, the church governs itself with the authoritarian top-down power of priests and prelates, bishops, elders, who through their control of the sacraments, worship, teaching, and doctrine, have maintained the purity of the faith, the protection of the faithful, and the sifting of the true from the false. That, that's the bright side, the good side, of the way church authoritarian church government has worked. And they've done it with priests, bishops, and elders. Though authoritarian government cannot be defended from the New Covenant, in other words, you won't find anything about it in the New Testament, in other words, saying, do it this way, it is often defended from the facts of church history, which prove, which they say proves the effectiveness of pre-Christian authorities, uh, governments, authoritarian governments, as much as the pharaohs proved that they were the reason for the rise and fall of the Nile. You see, for three millennia, the pharaohs went out every spring to perform the Nile Arise ritual. Okay. A month later, they would return to perform the Nile Fall ritual, proving that it's they who control the Nile. I mean, look, 3,000 years. Multiply 365 times 3,000. Okay? Nah, that's the wrong number. Multiply two times, that's 6,000 times they went out there before anybody could, they, they, they were there. Who are you to say that they aren't the ones making the Nile rise and fall? Well, elders in the church today make the same argument. 2,000 years, the church has been run this way. Who are you to say that we are not the ones who made, who, who've made the church successful. You see, God's word, this is my argument, God's word, like the rains on the upper Nile, causing the, which people down in the lower Nile never saw. They just saw the pharaohs out there saying, Nile rise. But those rains are what caused the Nile to rise and fall. In the same way, the word of God is the actual force that has sifted out his people and established them sometimes with the use of elders, often despite the elders, who, like the pharaohs, believed that it was their sacramental, doctrinal, and ritual control of the Nile. You know, the elders control the sacraments no more than the pharaohs control the Nile. But how can you argue against them for 2,000 years? Look at what they've done. What, what else could possibly be the explanation? And the elders have believed their sacramental, doctrinal, and ritual control of their labors as judges in the church courts are the source of the advance of the church in the world. The reality is, though, God's not going to share his glory with another, nor will he allow his word and spirit to be contained and ordered by human organizations. He discipled his elders to be free of all extraneous table-cleaning, administration, and judicial distractions so that their only passion would be to disciple the congregations by making the truth of God's word clear, applying it to their lives, their personal lives first through prayer and the people they were discipling second, and teaching an example in the power of the Holy Spirit. Their ministry has one end purpose, to create a self-controlled body of people who can do the work of the ministry far more effectively than a few elite hero priests of the faith. And yet, for some reason, for, for 2,000 years, it's been the hero priests of the faith who have made church history happen. Christ commanded his leaders, though, to move only in the power of the Holy Spirit. By, by the way, I have little footnotes here for scripture verses all over the place. I'm not going to be digging them up. But just go read John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And, and walk and, and just think about it from this perspective. Who runs the church? How is the church to, re, to be run? Where is the board of elders? Where is the meeting of the board of elders? Where is the binding of the congregation by the things these specialist elders do? You won't find it. Then ask yourself this question. Who is the one who's supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, doing what the Spirit says? being led into all truth. Christ commanded his leaders to move only in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he cannot be and the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled through the laying on of hands as Simon the sorcerer thought. 
and he taught them to reject the power of human organizational titles and offices, which controls the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit. Call no man father, call no man rabbi. The transforming grace of Jesus Christ writing his word on his people's heart and his work and the work of the Holy Spirit speaking through that word is what differentiates, separates God's congregation from the world and from the world's forms of government. Where this commitment to God's word exists, all doctrines and governments over time can and will be refined and corrected wherever they are mistaken or misapplied. Where this commitment to God's word does not exist, the church will soon become indistinguishable from the world. Now this is probably one of the most important things that I came to in this whole study. And that is the word of God is sufficient to separate out his people from the world and define them. He doesn't need anybody else. He'll use other people, but he certainly does not need a elite priestly class. God's word is complete, self-consistent, and self-interpreting. It needs no other source, authority, or proof than the affirmation of the Holy Spirit. No one can understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit speaking through it and opening their eyes, ears, mind, and heart. God's word is complete, unique, and preserved to our day from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing is to be added to or taken from it. True doctrine is that which is found in every verse of Scripture whose meaning is self-consistent, such as the doctrines of Scripture, the Trinity, the dual nature of Christ, the doctrine of creation, the fall, man, God, atonement, law, grace, providence, God's plan um, to transform the earth in space-time history, and so forth, just to name a few of them. The point of what makes a doctrine orthodox or true is that every verse of Scripture is in agreement with it. There's somewhere it may be found more than in others, but it is the context for everything in, in, in the Bible. All Scripture proclaims Jesus Christ. It's not incidental to him. It's not a story that has Jesus in it from time to time. It's Jesus Christ, his work, and his plan for all time because Jesus is God, the Son, slain before the foundation of the world, of which he is its creative architect and its redeemer. The whole thing is about him. His incarnation is the purpose and reason for all things. If you want to know what would be a sort of funny inside joke, if there was a comedy about Satan, it would have Jesus saying, that's right, Jesus, it's all about you, right. Well, for Jesus, it, it is all about him. His becoming flesh, his becoming a human being, is the purpose and reason that anything was made in the first place. Now, this sufficiency of Scripture in no way contradicts the fact that God's revelation to us hasn't ceased. Rather, it's the exact opposite. It's because his finished written word is the measure of all things that anyone believes or says that we have a foundation today to be confident that God's word tries the spirits, it tries the theological documents, it tries the, the things that you think you might be wanting to do that God's leading you. It tries all of those things, by try, I mean like a trial in court, so we can be confident to judge according to the scriptures whether or not it is God applying his word in any other judgment or gift or prophecy or teaching or revelation or hunch. We can, we can apply God's word to it. The whole idea that God has stopped communicating to us or only communicates to the, to the level of your ability to hermeneutically understand the scriptures is absurd. That's deism. And for somehow... I'm now speaking to my Reformed brethren, of which I am one. The Reformed world has fallen into that since the Reformation, and it's a tragedy. It's because of the authority and the completion of God's Word that we do not need to fear anything else God might say to us. His Word is all He needs to accomplish His purpose. God has no need of human leaders empowered by human organizations to impose their human ideas, or their godly ideas, of discipline in order to winnow his people as if either God's congregation is impotent to act for themselves or too ignorant to pass judgments in his name. And what you find throughout the gospel is Jesus at no point treats the normal average everyday people as impotent and ignorant. That he had special disciples does not mean that he put them in their own class of people who had special powers. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed. What, do you think he was just talking to James when he said that? Where these things are a firm conviction, 
that is the truth and the authority of Scripture. It follows that Scripture, not the interpretation or the decrees of men, is the final court of appeal for all thoughts, all doctrines, all philosophies, all controversies, freedoms, all governments, and worship. Yes, and all governments. Therefore, we can live confidently in the knowledge that it is not the elder's job or the, the, the leader's job in the church to sift God's people for him using the courts of the church to determine who's in and who's out. But rather they conquer by the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, and that they do not love their lives unto death. And they don't get distracted by all that other stuff. It's not part of their job. And we'll get to that. People, when they hear this, think that what I'm saying is, well, the church just has no ability to judge. It can't deal with sin or heresy. Oh, yes, it can. The point is, it doesn't, Jesus said, don't deal with it by, by appointing the greatest among you and then giving him the power to run your church and to run your life. The church is not devoid of the ability to discipline itself and to pass judgment simply because the Lord did not establish an office of final judge, we call them elders, to be held by a few leaders to exercise that judgment. Whether they call themselves priests or merely representatives of the church is not relevant to the truth of what they really are. Priest is as priest does. Mediator is as mediator does. That judgment, the judgment of the church, the ability of the church to pass judgment, resides in the right and obligation of the individual Christian to judge all things and to be judged by nothing. And in the congregation as a whole to apply corporate judgment when it is appropriately called for. In groups of two and three to apply judgment as it needs to be applied. The leaders authority to judge and bind people. That is the leaders in the church. And one of the things I do here is I use the word leaders because I, I don't want to tie myself to a specific tradition. There is not a tradition out there that doesn't in some way put people in charge and give them the authority to run the church, to decide who's in and out. The leader's power to judge rests in the fact that the leaders are Christians. There is no office or institutional authority or power in the church beyond those powers accessible to the least of these, my brethren. Now, there may be skills, there may be expertise. I'm not saying everybody can preach as well or think as well or, or, or argue as well. But the idea that access to the throne of God to invoke the power and authority of God in any situation for any purpose is not the special institution of some elite group of elders, of deacons, of popes. Those who lead in the church are not specially empowered to control the Holy Spirit or to control another member's standing in the faith or to control membership in the church of Jesus Christ beyond what any Christian is empowered to do or say by the Spirit speaking through the Word. And the classical text for that, and I refer to it all the way through, though I won't all the time, is Matthew 18. You got an objection? You got a problem with a brother? You take him to, you talk to him. You take him to uh, a witness, somebody you can talk to with him, see if, you know, see who's right and wrong. And then you take it to the congregation, not to the elders, not to the apostles, not to Peter, who's standing right there, you take it to the congregation. And then after that, Jesus said, hey, you know, I mean, you don't have to do this formal thing to the congregation. Where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I am in your midst. And by the way, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Those who lead are not specially empowered to control the Holy Spirit or to control another member's standing in the faith or membership in the church of Jesus Christ beyond what any Christian is empowered to do or say by the Spirit speaking through the Word. And that's why elders can communicate people, not because they're elders, but because they're Christians. Now, it isn't the silence. One argument I'd make is, hey, find anywhere where elders are given special powers by, the, by Jesus or by themselves. They're not, okay? But that's an argument for silence. It's not the silence of Scripture, which, by the way, does nowhere grant such status to leaders, that requires God's people to resist granting priestly and representative powers to their leaders. There are at least five positive sources for rejecting special controllers in the church, even though all history of the world from Genesis 3.16 on, that's where God tells the woman, um, that she is going to be subservient, submissive to her husband, and he shall rule over you. 
and all the history of the church, except that which is covered by the New Testament. That's like a little parenthesis in there. That's a little moment in there where Jesus said, I want you to do it like this. And he got 12 men to run and start an organization that did it like this. Other than the New Testament and what is recorded in Scripture, remarkably what is re recorded in Scripture, I'm shocked that there isn't, that, that I found this here. It really did surprise me because of the confidence that the church has had for 2,000 years that indeed Jesus and the apostles really did set people up to run the show on behalf of those poor, ignorant peons out there. There are five different places, positively, there's a lot more than that, that the New Testament tells us that it is impossible to, oh, excuse me, throughout world history, though, and throughout the history of the church, it's been believed impossible to govern any organization, much less the church, without authoritative controllers in the office of control. Jesus Christ, in Matthew 18, 15 through 22, empowers the congregation as the final court of appeal. You've got a judicial dispute, it's the congregation. The congregation is not seen as a single organization, but can pass binding judgments in ad hoc groups as small as two or three. And even as individuals, as when Peter passed judgment on Ananias and Paul, and, and, and Paul passed judgment on Hymenaeus and Alexander, turning them over to Satan, that they may learn um, to appreciate what it means to serve God. Yes, yes, I get it. This is an absurdity to the Gentile. It's an absurdity to the unregenerate understanding of political reality. To the mind that knows neither the spirit or the laws of God, it's absurd. It should not be absurd to Christians, however. Therefore, Christ calls us to reject this mind. Paul calls us to have this mind renewed. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. With all the problems in Corinth, he, he also said, uh, by the renewing of your mind. I, mean, I don't need to go into all those verses. But with all the problems in Corinth, I want you to notice something. It's worth reading the Corinthians on this. Paul never appeals to elders in any way to solve any problem that was going on in Corinth. Nor does he attribute those problems to a lack of elders or to a lack of the proper functioning of elders. Most notably, and I'm just going to go through a list of these. Concerning the Lord's table, as well as standing in the faith, are you really a Christian? Are you worthy of the gospel or the being called a Christian? Are you worthy of going to the table? He says he has no elder is called upon to fence the table. That is to keep people, those of you who reform know what that means. It means the pastor stands up before communion and he warns everybody, don't come up here if you're unrepentant, if you're not a believer, if you're this, if you're that, or the other thing. There's no fencing of the table. In, in a Corinth. But by the way, the issue there was a bunch of men came early to the wedding feast. Oh man, I forgot all about the food. I got into this. Came early to the wedding feast, excuse me, the uh, agape feast. And they just started drinking all the wine. They got drunk. It was a huge scandal. Who are these guys? What are they doing? Who do they think they are? And, and so Paul is, is in dealing with the issue of people coming to communion and getting drunk. Um, he doesn't say, get your elders to warn everybody that people have gotten sick and died at this table, so I've got to hold you back from damnation, so I'm going to examine you. Or I'm No, he doesn't do that at all. What Paul does is he asks those drunks to examine themselves to judge their worthiness. And then he tells everybody, actually, but it's in the context of talking to them. And then as far as judging worthiness... He doesn't tell them to that they can now excommunicate, you know, the, the elders can't, but you can. No. His thing is this. You've got to come to the table. It's like your kids. They can't skip supper. They have to come. The only question is, are you eating blessing or cursing upon yourself? And it's in that context. He does not give anybody in the church the authority to keep anybody else away from the table, nor does he give you the authority to treat God as if God is a chump who doesn't, who, hey, you know, I've, I've sinned, so maybe if I don't go take communion, God will, uh, you know, like overlook my sin or something. No, that's as stupid as saying, hey, I've sinned. Maybe if I go take communion, that'll, that'll kind of balance out the sin. I've done a good deed of communion. It doesn't work that way either. It's not a magical table. But the point of all this is the elders have no place in that process. <clears throat> 
The Lord is set forth in those passages as fully capable to fence and discipline his table without priestly control granted to men. Because mark my words, if you have the power to keep somebody away from the table, you are a priest, and I don't care what you call yourself. The power to mediate between a member of the congregation and the table of Jesus Christ is the power of a priest. How about resolving disputes? You all, they're, they're all suing each other there in Corinth. And Paul says, really, any member is superior to any pagan judge. Just go to any member of the church. Go to the least esteemed among them. Who cares? They're better able. They have more ethical judicial maturity than a pagan judge. How about decency and order? Oh, you have all this riot going on. They were doing all the wrong stuff, getting drunk at communion, and people are just singing a song and nobody paying attention to them. And there's this confusion going on in the service. And Paul says, you need elders to see to it that there's order in the church service. No, he, he didn't do that. Instead, he appealed to them to pay attention to what is going on. And from their own self-discipline, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of self-control. By the Holy Spirit at work in their heart, Consider the other person as better than yourself. Submit to them. Oh, you want to sing a song? Sing. You want to lead us in singing? Let's sing. You want to preach? Let's listen. Decency and order is not established by an elder empowered to control the events of the gathering, to control the eating, to control the business, to control the worship, to control the Lord's table. Rather, each member is appealed to to recognize the body of Christ in the other members. No elder judges sin either. The congregation does. At every point, there's, a, there's this man who's sleeping with his father's wife. Probably not his mother, but his, you know, one of his father's second wives, or who knows. It, in America, you can certainly understand that, because half the people listening to this have divorced parents. Um, and so, it's not quite the same as incest, but it's still pretty gross. Um, and, and, and in dealing with that, Paul doesn't say you can't deal with without an elder. Oh, man, I, I see your problem, Corinth. Because you don't have any elders, you can't deal with this. Well, here, let's get some elders together. They'll go in the smoke-filled back room, have a six-month-long examination of this fellow. And if after 17 warnings, he kept... No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, first of all, they should have dealt with it before it even came to him. It, by the way, it wasn't appealed to them before the rumor of it even came to him. But he says, you know what? You do this. Just get together, meet, and while you're gathered together, I'll be with you in spirit, and we're just going to pass judgment on this guy. Paul wasn't necessary to be there for judgment to be passed. He was simply speaking as a member of the congregation who was an elder. Remember, Paul could excommunicate people. Paul could, could turn Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan for the same reason you can. It's not because he was Paul the Apostle. It's because he was Paul the Christian. At Corinth, no elder judges sin. The congregation does. At every point, the congregation or the individual conscience, conscience is the examiner and judge. Paul joins his apostolic judgment to the congregation's judgment, who should have judged long before he ever heard the matter. His judgment was not what made it work. It's not because he was the elder that it worked. It's because they were the congregation that it worked. So, here's a Bible study I want you to conduct. The argument from silence. Search the two letters of, of the Corinthians and underline the role of the elder in all verses where Paul prescribes a role for the elder. To solve a problem, to do something, whatever it might be. Just see what the elder does. Then, when no such role is found, I mean, spoiler alert, you're not going to find a role. But it's, it's still worth going through and looking for it. Because many people don't believe that. Many people still function as if, surely the elders had something to do. But when no such role is found for an elder, it is still important to ask if Silas towards the elder is joined by a positive commands to empower the proper authority in each situation where no appeal to elders is found. That's worth repeating. You see, as you go through, and there's a problem, what's Paul's solution? It's not just that he didn't need an elder to solve the problem. It's that an elder solving the problem would not have solved it with any more authority than whoever or whatever the mechanism was that solved the problem. The whole point is not that elders can't pass judgment. It's that everybody can. This isn't their special job. The special job of elders is not to provide leadership and bind the con congregation. 
is to provide leadership and pray that the congregate the Holy Spirit speaking through the, his word to each person in the congregation says, hey, that's a good direction to go. Let's go in it. And they submit to it. He can't enjoin the submission, but we'll get to that too. That's the argument from positive command. So underline all the responsible agents Paul appeals to in any situation that you used to think belong to ex exclusively only the elders can do this. When instructing Timothy and Titus, Paul does not give any instructions for tribunals, that's a big courtroom, to resolve problems, but the exact opposite. Paul instructs elders to solve all problems through attention to doctrine, character, service, and love. Don't take my word for it. Search all three books and see. Underline every way Paul instructs them to overcome sin, criticism, error, and opposition. And by the way, when we come to the end of this handbook on, on, on a New Testament church order, uh, I go through Timothy and, I, uh, and, and basically do that. I point out every problem, everything that's raised, every issue, and show how Paul instructs Timothy, an elder, by the way, he, he instructs Timothy, an elder, to deal with and to resolve the problem. It's, it's even better than that. If you just take out the fact that he's talking to elders, what you'll realize is there's literally nothing in Timothy and Titus that couldn't just as well be a book of instructions for how you or I should live a life in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the it's like, oh, this is, this is, these are the rules for elders. I'm sorry, find anything that's a rule, you know, only pick people who have these characteristics. Find any of those characteristics and, 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 and then tell me which of those characteristics are special to elders. And aren't general, every Christian ought to be like this. They're just simple definitions of holiness. He is simply saying, make sure your elders an exemplary Christian. That's all. Though members of the congregation are on occasion... Uh, admonished to submit to elders. That's something people are always asking me. Well, how about where they're told to submit to elders? You're absolutely right. Submit to elders. Now tell me, find where any elder is given a corresponding empowerment to enforce your submission. In other words, are you free not to submit? Elders are in fact told by Jesus and Peter to reject this power characteristics of Gentile government. Just Jesus said flat out, don't do it that way. And, and, and a Peter, in a 1 Peter 5, 3, it's, it's, it's worth, worth looking it up, simply says, don't lord it over the flock, don't rule over the flock, same word Jesus used. Uh, instead, be an example to them. Direct contrast. You could say, well, lorded means a false means an improper abuse of authority. By the way, the Greek word doesn't in any way imply, imply abuse of authority, either where Peter uses it or where um, Jesus uses it, when he says uh, that, that, that in the, the nations pick, choose their great men to lord it over the, their subjects, and he doesn't want them to do that. Peter says, don't lord it over that word, and I'll be looking at it in more detail later as a word, but the word doesn't mean an improper use of authority. The word simply means he doesn't want that control. But, but, but forget all that lexical, lexicographical stuff. Peter specifically contrasts ruling over with being an example. And that is the difference between discipleship, being an example, and ruling over, which is the way any government has to elect people to run the show. And, and Peter's saying, you don't do it that way. Jesus is saying, you don't do it that way. But that form of government is rejected. The congregation then is admonished not to submit. By, by, by the way, if, if you want another example of this, the congregation is admonished not to submit or join anyone, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, where they are in error. And Peter, of course, again, is a great example of that. Peter says, um, you know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're the cornerstone. The whole church is going to be built on you. And then Peter says, Jesus, you really don't need to go to the cross. Let's not talk about that. And Jesus says, you're Satan. You're the stumbling stone. 
The whole church will fall over you if that word of your testimony stands. Here, I'll take those keys of the kingdom back. You see, Peter wasn't the foundation of the church because he was Peter, or Jesus says he was. Peter was the foundation of the church because of his confession, because he stood in the truth. And so later, when we see Peter denying Christ to a little little servant girl, uh, what is that, Peter the apostle, to be, we, we should all go out and deny Christ? Um, when, when you see Peter in Galatia saying, oh, I better not involve in the, uh, the agape feast with God's people because they're Gentiles, and besides, the folks from uh, James might get a little hinky about it. Paul confronts him to his face and says, I don't care if Peter's an apostle. You don't follow him on this point. You see, the final court of appeal is not who is the apostle. The final court of appeal is who is standing in the truth. The final court of appeal is not who did Jesus say was his favorite guy. Peter and John, definitely in that group. In fact, Peter liked James so much that he had, I mean, Jesus liked James so much that he had him martyred early on. And that's what we have here. That's the separation point. Is who's standing in the truth? And who's given the right of that judgment? The members of the congregation. I know someone is going to be saying, well, what, what happens when all the members of the congregation disagree? We have anarchy here. I'll be dealing with that in just a minute. The congregation is admonished, individuals are admonished not to submit or join anyone, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, for they are in error. And Peter is a classic example of precisely that fact. Now, this fact alone of how Peter goes back and forth confirms that it is judgment of each member of the congregation that's final, not the judgment of an officer of some organization called the church or an officer who is an elder and a member of session or something like that. To summarize that, the scripture does not give control of the worship service the exclusive power to teach, or who has access to baptism, who can get baptized, and who can eat at the Lord's table, to officers of the church, however they might be selected, elected, appointed, or whose hands are laid on them. This is how government works in all other organizations, which Jesus called Gentiles. But Jesus said it is not to be that way among you. By contrast, these things are given to all of God's people. Everything that any elder says is the special office of the elder is actually given to every member of the church of <clears throat> Jesus Christ. <clears throat> There's a lot of pepper in there, and it's good pepper. It's given <clears throat> to the people who are members of Christ <clears throat> jointly and severally. I do something to get that out of there. The powers of the church are not kept on behalf of the people by an ecclesiastical guardian ad litem. When a child is immature, but his parents are wealthy, and let's say they die, he'll inherit when he becomes an adult. But until that time, while he's a child, he's protected from being able to do whatever he wants to do with all that money by court-appointed or parental-appointed people called guardians ad litem. They are people who function in loco parentis, in place of the parents, uh, controlling all the assets until the child becomes mature enough to take them on. And that is actually the model of the church by those who believe that the elders have special powers that the congregation doesn't have, um, that they are the guardian ad litem for the congregation holding the powers because the congregation is too immature. And this is something that I, I promise you, if, if you want to stick bamboo shoots under the fingernails of, of um, ministry industrial complex Christians, call them immature. And I'm going to get into this in about three talks later, much further down in this document. But the fact is, I don't call them immature. I'm not calling them immature now. I'm saying it's, an, it's a structure that they have adopted 
that treats them as immature. This is your book of church, not, excuse me, not this, not, not what I'm reading from now, but the book of church order, the Presbyterian Church in America, the book of church order, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the canons of whatever for the Catholic Church, um, the, whatever the Orthodox call them, I don't know. Every church has rules of how things are run around here. And in every one of those books, powers are given to those who are in charge, the controllers, and they control everything, and they control it on behalf of the incompetent. That's not me. I'm not calling you an incompetent, uh, forgot even the word for it, um, an incompetent child, immature. What I'm saying is you've bought into a system where to buy into it, you must confess you are incompetent. They know better than me. They are the ones who, who, who control my life. And even as I put it that way, they'll say, yeah, well, of course it ought to be that way. They're my superior. They'll say all that stuff. And then they'll get upset when I say, fine, you're incompetent. And they say, well, what are you calling me incompetent for? I, I didn't. You did. That's the system you bought into. If you're familiar with how courts work, you know, when you go to court and you have an attorney, you're not allowed to open your mouth unless the court tells you to. Do you know why? The fact that you hired an attorney is you're saying, I am incompetent to speak in this place. Therefore, I, had, I hired an expert to speak for me. You don't think that's true? Just go into court, have an attorney, and try to say something. I promise you, it, it isn't going to work. And that's what's, what's going on. Okay, now you got that. That's exactly the Church of Jesus Christ by any book of church order. Okay, you may say, hey, it's good that I'm incompetent. I get that. But don't say I'm wrong for calling you incompetent. You have done that by saying I'm a Presbyterian in good standing and I follow the, the Presbyterian Book of Church order. You have called yourself incompetent because the Book of Church order calls you incompetent. Because the Book of Church order says you don't have what it takes to handle the authority and power of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, the authority and power of the Church of Jesus Christ, now that I mentioned this, <clears throat> the authority and power of the Church of Jesus Christ and those ordained to lead it is the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. The ever-present temptation of God's people is to do for themselves and their organization what only the Holy Spirit can do through them. This is the spiritual root and foundation of the Church's submission to authoritarian governments of elders. These elders who rise up to replace the call and ministry of the Holy Spirit with their various tests and their educational programs designed to produce a qualified leader, whether the Holy Spirit qualifies that leader or not. And that's one of the things that I find ironically hilarious. It's sort of like what your boards of elders are is an organ a vast organization with their seminaries and with their boards of elders and so forth that simply say, trust us and we promise you, you'll never be without a leader. Okay? The Holy Spirit makes no such promises. The Holy Spirit says, I will move in your midst. That's his only promise. And you go, well, well, well I, I, I don't see any Holy Spirit moving right now. Well, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. Peter said, good idea. Hey, by the way, we need to replace, and all, all of a sudden he was off administratively replacing Judas. Had no idea what God had in mind. He had an idea of what God had to do, though. And the whole church apparatus is like that. Wait. Wait for God to move by the Holy Spirit. Don't trust an organization that says, we will give you a qualified man through our educational and uh, mentorship techniques, no matter what. Trust the Holy Spirit, who may think you don't need a qualified man in your church right now. The elders, bishops, pastors, teachers, prophets, that's what I mean when I refer to leaders, I could have also said prelates, primates, archprimates, uh, cardinals, and so forth. I, I, I could, could have gone, I left out the word apostle. Um, when I use the word leader, those are the people I'm talking about. But these people the, of the church inherit the apostolic task to disciple the church, which is carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak through the ministry of the word, prayer, and their example. Their sole undistracted passion is to disciple unto spiritual, ethical, and judicial maturity congregations capable of passing all such judgments and performing all actions that's, that since the fall into sin have been thought to be the special province and the powers of the leaders. 
they need to be the disciple of the church in such a way that if they were to die right now, while it would be tragic, the church would go on without a stumble, without a hitch, without a hiccup. Right now, if I were to die, I have children from the age 20 to 40. If I were to die, my family would continue without a hitch. My wife and I have successfully discipled them into adult maturity in America, such as it is. That's the task of elders. Now, by, by the way, I don't feel like, oh, they've left me behind. No, they haven't. I can't tell you how great it is to walk into a restaurant or to a bar or onto a beach, walking along and having my adult children walking with me. It's like, I shouldn't tell you this, one of my unsanctified things is, fantasies is, going into a bar somewhere, having my daughters pick a fight, and then just having a brawl with all my family, going at it. Okay, I'm sorry, I know that's sin, that's wrong, and somebody's going to use that against me, I know, granted. But, that's what it's like to be a biblical patriarch. I'm not talking about patriarchy. I mean, your children have grown up, they're mature. You know what, they don't have to get into the fight if they don't want to. They can walk out the door. The whole point is, they're there with you in the gate. They will stand against your enemies in the gate. Now, I realize a barroom brawl is not quite the gate of the wicked, but well, it might be. But you get my point. That is where God wants the church. The elders not saying, dang, I can't spank him anymore. I, you rebel, uh, you're not submitting to me. No, no, you want that mature relationship in the church. So you can have that relationship with everybody in the church so that if the Lord were to take you right now, the church wouldn't miss a thing. I should say the church would not lose an ounce of power. They would lose you, and that's important. Through prayer, the ministry of the word, and sound example, they are to, the elders are to passionately devote themselves to the producing of a congregation characterized by ethical and judicially mature love, hope, and mutual submission to one another. Confident that God's transforming grace, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the Word dwelling richly in each believer will reveal, sanctify, sanctify, and establish his people over time. Each person governing their own life according to God's law written on their recreated hearts. That's freedom. That's freedom. No longer needing an external governor to keep you on the straight and narrow. And you see, here's the confidence, and this is, this is going to go throughout the rest of everything that this Book of Church Order has to say. Scripture will always find God's people. It will form God's people. It is the grid which sifts them out through all mankind, through all the millennia. The elder's task is not to be the examiner and the judge of God's people, as if he is the door to the sheepfold. And mark my words, if the elder controls everything that the elders claim to control in the Book of Church Order, he is the door to the sheepfold. He's the door to the door. It's exactly what, what the mother of James and John was asking for. Hey, could one sit at the right hand and the left? They're saying, Jesus, you're the door, no doubt about that. But, you know, we want to be the sub-doors. We want to be the access ways to get to Jesus. And that's what the elders have become through authoritarian religious formats. The elder's task is not to be the examiner and the judge of God's people as if he is the door or the sub-door of the sheepfold nor is he to control God's people by having the power to control their standing in Christ, control their worship, teaching, and the sacraments. The power to control these things in the life of the church is, by definition, the power of priestly mediation. It is the power of God, of, it, and it's the power of the people of God. They are the priests, the mediators, if you will. They deal directly with God. They do not need the elders to tell them whether or not they're fit to take communion. Paul says, examine yourselves. He does not say, get the damn elder to examine you. And I say the word damn because that's precisely where that doctrine comes from. Put somebody, the elder, who's examining you between you and God. Rather, he is to faithfully teach God's word in season and out of season. The elder does have a job. It is critical to the ministry of the church. He is to faithfully contrast truth with error but not to erect himself as a court to pass judgment on those who are in error, except to pronounce their error, pray against it, warn them of it, argue, and perhaps if in no other way can be found to convince them to that the matter is serious enough, he, like any Christian, brings them before the congregation whom he has discipled, confident that God doesn't need him to grant the con congregation 
sound judgment. They may overrule him. That's okay. The mature elder in Christ needs to say what he believes is true and let God sort it out. And that's where the word of God is the final sieve, the sift, that, that sorts people out. It's not our ability as elders to judge them. And that brings us to the end of the first section of the, um, of the New Testament book of church order found from the upper room. The next section is going to be Christ's word regulates the growth and division of the church. Um, this is, that part is going to deal with the fascinating question. Okay, you got everybody running around there. Every Christian is the final court of appeal. Every Christian is the Supreme Court justice. This sounds like confusion to me. It deals with that question. Um, and that normally is a question where most people stop thinking and just give up on the whole process. The third section is Christ regulates his worship. In this section, the, uh, uh, this is the regulative principle, if you will, found in the upper room of how does God, how did God himself regulate worship rather than being like the Dutch, excuse me, like, like the Scottish reformers up there in Scotland and saying, hmm, decently in an order, what can we do with this concept? And rationalistically turning it into who knows what. Um, Go and look at how Jesus Christ regulated worship. He did, you know. Go and look and see what bugged Jesus, which is an interesting study. Look at everywhere Jesus gets mad. You know where he got mad? He got mad in front of Lazarus's tomb. He got mad when they wouldn't let the babies come to him. That got him mad. Um, interesting the things Jesus got mad, but, but, but more than anything else, Christ regulates worship. See what got under his skin. What bugged him? Yeah. I remember one point I was writing along saying, that, you know, he, was, he wasn't bothered by distractions. Well, yes, he was. He, from time to time, he would say, have I been with you so long that you don't get this? And then finally, um, after the, what Christian worship is and, and, and how the upper room regulates it, um, there's the uh, chapter, not, not the chapter, but the section uh, on the, uh, man, this part is long, Leadership in the church, the power and authority of God's people. How do they run their business without it turning into uh, chaos? But Jesus launched was a royal priesthood who would no longer need anyone to teach them, but they would all know him from the least to the greatest. So why does the New Testament have a teaching function? Ever wondered about that? Well, it does have a teaching function. Anyway, that's, that's the fifth section. And then the sixth section, actually, that'll be the fourth talk, the fifth section. I've, I've put some of these together. The sixth section is, is basically, so you want to chart a church. What would the rules of order be for a church that has no one in charge? Or, to put it another way, what would the rules for order be for a church that has everyone in charge? I know it sounds ludicrous, but these are issues we're going to deal with. How can you have everybody in charge and not have mass chaos? So stay tuned. These are coming. And, and, and by the way, <clears throat> I'm probably the only one in church history, I'm sure. I have a feeling this sort of thing hasn't been said before. Maybe I'm dead wrong. I don't know. I'm not enough of a scholar. You have to ask people like Joel McDermott. But I can tell you this. I am the first person to use vestments to identify which talks go together. So these are going to be the blue shirt talks. A really easy way to find it. You just go look for a blue shirt, and up at the top, it'll, ha it'll give the title of what the talk is. And that'll be the easy way to find it on my site or anywhere else you might happen to run into it. And I bet you money I've, I've made church history on this one. My vestments simply identify which talks they are. So the Lord bless you, keep you. I am going to go finish this meal. It is an awesome meal. And, and honestly, come eat it with me anew in the kingdom or of old in the kingdom, come to uh, Swannanoa, North Carolina. Come to Moments Coffee Shop, and we will party like it's 1549. You have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger, and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. 
May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.